Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your word made visible through uh, the covenant sign of baptism. We ask you now that you would uh, give us spiritual ears to hear your word. Uh, and that means uh, believing ears, uh, trusting ears, and ears that receive this as if it's coming from an actual person, you. Uh, would you help us to hear your voice uh, through your word today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing in our series in Worldview, and we've been going over what's called the Five Points of Calvinism, which is summarized by the Crostic Tulip. And, and today we're landing on the uh, letter L in Tulip, which stands for Limited Atonement. Limited Atonement. Um, let me give some fair warning before we dive into this. Um, this is, if, if last week we covered what might be like intellectually more difficult doctrine, this might be one that might give you more emotional problems um, than intellectual ones. One of the things I'd never gotten used to when I was growing up in Hong Kong is uh, whenever we would go to like a, a decent restaurant, pretty decent restaurant, and my parents would order a fish, something like the special catch of the day, uh, the waiter would bring the actual fish over to our table while it's still alive and it's you know trying to escape. Uh, and basically tell you, this is what you will be feasting on today. It's this catch right here. And then, you know, if my dad gives the, the, the nod, okay, execute, right? Then they'll go kill it, and they'll cook it, and they'll make it presentable and, um, and delicious. But the initial, the initial encounter was always a bit too raw for me. That initial encounter, right, when the fish looks me in the eye, you know, it's just too much. Uh, but once that fish is processed, right, steamed and it's flavored and dead, it's, it's delightful. Okay? Um, many of us have grown up in the church with this final prepared dish called the gospel. Never seeing the raw fish that came before that. So, so, you know, you've heard Jesus died for your sins, and if you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven, and you will enter the kingdom of God. Right? That's a very well-processed and flavorful dish. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do through, through this is actually show you the fish while it was still alive, okay? before it went through all that processing. And it's going to feel raw. It's going to feel, whoa, okay, at first. Because here's what the doctrine of limited atonement actually says, that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he did not die for the sins of everyone in the entire world, but only for the sins of the elect, the chosen, the chosen people of God. That's the doctrine of limited atonement in a nutshell. Okay. Now, really quickly, how does that contrast with the Arminian view? If that's Calvinist view, what's the Arminian view? Unlimited atonement, meaning... Uh, they say that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of every single person in the entire world, whether they believe or not. That's unlimited atonement. And the, the question that's underlying this timeless debate between Calvinists and Arminians is, did Jesus' death on the cross make our salvation possible? Or did Jesus' death on the cross make salvation powerful and actual? The Calvinist view is that when Jesus died on the cross, he powerfully saved his people to the end, to the finish line. The Arminian view is when Jesus died on the cross, he made it possible for anyone and everyone to be saved. 
But it's only actualized if you choose it, if you choose to receive it. So underlying this debate is also this debate about whether Jesus' death on the cross is possible, making our salvation possible, or is it making our salvation powerful? Right, this is fishy theological stuff, right? Um, so let me, let's begin to cook it now. Okay, let's process it so that you walk out feeling like you're actually getting something delightful. Here's what we'll do. We'll look at the proof from Scripture and see what it actually teaches us. We'll address some problems that this causes for us in our minds, in our feelings, objections that arise. And let's close by considering the purpose of teaching this doctrine. Why is the Bible even talking about this? Why is the Bible talking about limited atonement if it you know, can offend us and rub us the wrong way? Okay, the proof, the problems, and purpose. All right? So first, the proof from Scripture. Now, again, the question is, did the death of Jesus make salvation possible or make it powerful for us? Let's start with our passage today in 1 Corinthians. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. As if, you know, like I just mentioned earlier, baptism itself is not the essential thing. It's believing the gospel and the power of the gospel. And he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, here Paul is clearly indicating the cross of Christ has a certain power. Not a certain possibility, it has a certain power to do, th- do things. What is this power? Verse 18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice that. Those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is a power to save. In other words, the power of the cross is the power to actually save, not make it possible for us to be saved. And then in verse 30, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Okay, notice again, it doesn't say God gives us the possibility of righteousness, possibility of sanctification, possibility of redemption. God is giving us these things in actuality through Jesus Christ. And so verse 31 logically follows, let the one who boasts, therefore, boast in the Lord. Why? Because it's Christ's atonement that saves us, not just makes it possible for us to then choose into it, but it actually saves us. It's powerful enough to save. So boast in Him. Not in yourself, not in your wise decision-making and choosing. In Him, boast in Him. Here's another passage from Romans 5, verse 10, and this is not on the slides. Let me just read it to you. While we were enemies, Paul says, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Okay, listen to that. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It doesn't say we were reconciled to God by us choosing to believe in the death of his son. We're reconciled to God by the death of his son. The power is in the death of the son, not in our believing in the death of the son. It's made actual by Christ and his power alone. He is enough. Listen to this from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, from Jesus' own words. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. To give His life as a ransom for many. He did not say to give His life as a ransom for all. 
for many. It's limited to many, not all. I think the most explicit statement confirming limited atonement is from John chapter 10, where Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. Okay, to whom, for whom is God, is Jesus a good shepherd? He says this, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And listen to what he says next. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He's not laying his life down for the sheep and the goats. Remember, that's the metaphor that was used to distinguish between those who truly believe and belong to the eternal family of God and those who only seem to, in appearance, be religious but not really believing in Jesus Christ, right? He says, I lay my life down for the sheep, not sheep and goats. It's limited. The power of the cross is limited to the sheep. The cross, therefore, is for the elect. That's the purpose for which Jesus died on the cross. It's singular. It was to save his people, deliver his sheep. Not to make salvation possible for everyone who ever lived in the entire world, but to make it powerful and actual for his sheep. Remember Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished. Jesus' cry in his final moment was not, it is possible. He said, it is finished. He's finished all that is required for his people to enter into the kingdom of God. He finished it. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. That's what that means. Let me try to illustrate this with something I might, I think I might have mentioned this to some of you. Uh, From the movie Karate Kid. The 1984 version, okay? Uh, so you don't complain to me about spoiling any recent movies. Uh, you've had close to four decades to watch this. So if you haven't seen the 1984 Karate Kid, that's, that's on you, right? So in the original Karate Kid, uh, Daniel, the main character, coached by uh, Mr. Miyagi, right, is fighting Johnny in the, in the final match of the championship tournament. And, and at first, he's just getting a beating, right? And Johnny's cheating too. He's targeting the wounded leg and everything, right? It's kind of messed up. It's not looking good for Daniel, right? Because he can't really attack or do anything. He can barely stand up. And then, right, when all hope seems to be gone, right, Daniel remembers Mr. Miyagi's crane stance, right? Which is something that allows him to stand on one leg for a while, right? Before he can prepare to attack. So he's hopping on one leg, barely, barely standing. And somebody yells out from the crowd, finish him, finish him. Right? And then so Daniel, he, he does this really quick hop, like he split seconds, switches off of his bad leg, right, to lift his good leg with like this momentum and deliver this powerful kick to Johnny's chin and bam, knocks him out, right? Knocks him out cold. The crowd goes wild, they storm into the ring and Daniel gets thrown into the air, right? He's the new karate champion and Mr. Miyagi, right, very calmly looks over at him, very proud face, right, gives him like a nod and which, by the way, is like a huge meme now. I don't know if you knew that, right? That, that's the ending. And to me, it's like one of the best endings to, to any movie, like in the history of cinema. That ending is glorious. It's glorious because the hero finishes the task. It's where the victory is not presented as a possibility, but an actuality. 
The story of Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ comes to us with a good ending, a finishing ending. It's where our Savior, wounded, still manages to deliver a powerful and devastating kick to our enemy's chin. He defeats death. Right? And the crane stands, by the way, if you look closely, it kind of looks like a cross. That's, that's too much. He, he put death to death. That's why he cried, it's finished. It's not possible, it's finished. I've won all the victory there is to win. And this is, if you think about it, it's consistent with what we learned about last week, about unconditional election, right? Think about it. If the Father had chosen many, not all, many to be saved, the Son, therefore, would logically be joining with His Father's mission to atone for the sins of the many, not all. To save them definitively and finally. So according to Scripture, the work of the cross, because it's powerful, it's the finishing work of God's salvation, it is limited in its application to God's chosen people. God's elect to his sheep. The, the Armenian position of unlimited atonement contradicts this. It's, they say that the death of Jesus and his atonement is not itself powerful to save, but makes it possible to save. But the benefit is it's possible for everyone to be saved, possible for anyone to be saved if they choose it. Right? So what is it that makes it then go from possible to powerful for the Armenian? Human choice. Your choice. So if you were to choose to believe in Jesus Christ and receive the death of Jesus as death on your behalf, that's what makes Jesus' death powerful for you. Otherwise, even though he died for your sins, that power is lost to you because you chose not to receive and you chose not to believe. Make sense? Okay. And if you're like, that's what I'm thinking, that's okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Let's keep going. Let's keep processing this. Is this the gospel? Jesus made the salvation of everyone possible, but not anyone actual. Is the gospel, rather, that Jesus made the salvation of many actual and powerful? I think from what we've read from the scriptures so far, it's saying the latter. There's power in the death of the cross, in the death of Jesus Christ and his cross. I would say it is infinitely better news to say that God's salvation is unlimited in its power for some than it is to say it is limited in its power for all. Why do I say it's limited in its power? Because it's not powerful until you choose it. Until you choose it, until you become powerful and help yourself, it, it's not powerful for you. In a sense, it's, it's like this. If it is limited in its power for all people, then all people are left on their own to bridge the remaining gap between this infinite God and, the, and finite sinners, right? And the truth is no one can bridge that gap, even if it's halfway, even if God's saying, God is saying, I've come halfway, now you have to come the other half. That is not comforting to us. That's almost like, hey, I've, I've cut the distance between you and Mars by half, now travel the other half. That's not good news. No one can bridge that gap. No one can meet the infinite God halfway because halfway to infinity is still a very, very, very long way. Is that the gospel that God meets us halfway at the cross and folds his arms and says, okay, now it's your turn. 
And if you choose to reject me, that's, that's on you. Bye. Is that the gospel? Or is the gospel the good news of God saving us to the uttermost? Him being not only the author, but also the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. As it says in Hebrews 12 too. The good news of the gospel is not that he's left it for us to finish what he started. The good news of the gospel is that he finishes what he starts. I hope that gives you enough scriptural basis to see that this is, this is not just Calvinists making stuff up, but it's from the scriptures. But here, let's turn to some common problems this causes for people and objections that arise, both both scriptural, intellectual, and emotional problems that people have with this. Okay, first let me mention the most commonly, most commonly raised objection to the doctrine of limited atonement, taken from scripture, and that is John 3.16. Right, the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, for God so loved the world Right. And by the way, Calvinists know that that verse exists. <laughs> it's not like you're giving us a big reveal. Okay, so let's, let's unpack the verse. We have to understand this verse in its original meaning in the Greek language. First of all, the word world means a lot of things in the Bible. And not often does it mean every single person who has ever lived in the entire world. When it says Caesar, for example, called the whole world to register for the census, that's that's not every single person in the entire world. That's not including Koreans and Chinese and Japanese. Right? That's everyone under Caesar's domain. But the, the language they use in a colloquial way is the world. The world counts as anyone who's under Caesar's domain. When Paul says, do not love the world, he's not talking about don't love your neighbors. That contradicts Jesus. That word world there means the broken and sinful fallen world that contradicts the word of God or goes against God's will. The word world means something much narrower when you look at its usage in context. So here in John chapter 3, the context is really world in its fallen state, in its sinful state. Okay. Here's the other phrase we have to understand in the original context. So loved. But what does that mean? The phrase so loved needs explaining because uh, it can't simply mean that God so loved this fallen sinful world. Well, he, loves, he loves sin. <laughs> that, it can't mean that. What does this mean? Uh, when the Bible uses so loved, it's not emphasizing how much. In English, it sounds like that oftentimes. It means how. So, so actually, in the English language, there's a parallel to this. So if I was teaching my son how to ride the bicycle, how to tie shoelaces, or how to play basketball, I would explain things to him this way. I would say, Owen, this is how you dribble the basketball, like so. Right? The, the, the word so is used in, in terms of a methodical term, in terms of how you do something. This is how the word so is used in John 3.16. This is how God loved this sinful, broken world. He sent his son. Right? It doesn't, it's, it's not trying to say, look how great his love is, but look at how, to what, using what method has he loved the world. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, for God so loved the world means God loved the world in such a way. He gave his only son. And here, read the rest of the verse. Whoever believes in him should perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. It's limited. The verse itself limits the love to those who believe. 
It's not a good verse for unlimited, unlimited atonement. It's limited to those who believe. Uh, what about the verses that talk about how God desires all, all to be saved? Okay. Uh, one, one answer that's pretty simple is all or everyone is, again, linguistically different from what we mean by all. Uh, when we look at a lot of these verses in context, the word all really means all without distinction, meaning uh, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, young and old, okay? All without distinction, but not all in terms of every single individual, okay? Does all include the devil? Does all include Judas Iscariot? Does all include Pharaoh? When you look at scripture, clearly it doesn't. So even the Arminian use of the word all is exclusive. <laughs> okay? um, there's no completely inclusive understanding of the word all. Okay? Uh, it's like if you were to hear someone say, um, you know, PJ is a racist. Okay? Um, what, what I hope you would say is, no, he's not. He loves all people. Okay? But when you use the word all there, you don't mean like I love every single individual who's ever lived in the entire world. You mean whoever I come into contact with, right? So even in our common usage of the word all is limited in a sense. The Bible is linguistic and it has these limited usages. And we can't simply just take it out of context and use it the way, interpret it the way we want it to mean. All means without distinction. And God had to make this point to the Israelites a, a lot of times because racial animosity was a problem, big problem for them, whether it's you know, with the Romans or Samaritans or Syrophoenicians or other Gentiles. So God had to remind them, God loves all without distinction. Okay. Okay, perhaps another problem related to this, and this is more perhaps an emotional problem we might face with limited atonement is, it seems to make God less loving than unlimited atonement. The term itself, limited, right, doesn't sound as cool as unlimited. Unlimited atonement. Well, it sounds a lot cooler than limited atonement. Is that true, though? Does unlimited atonement make God more loving than limited atonement? No. And let me give you a few reasons why. The okay, first reason, Arminius' idea that Christ's death is unlimited in its application and Jesus died for the sins of everyone in the world is not more loving because not everyone gets saved definitively. Not anyone gets saved definitively. Again, because Jesus' death only made salvation for the whole world possible, not actual. Here's what that means. Think about what that means. If Jesus' death and his atonement made it possible for the world to choose to be saved, logically, it's also true that God made it possible for all the world to not be saved. God made it possible for no one to be saved. Because it's possible for everyone to be saved. It's also possible for no one to be saved. Does that make sense? No one's saved in particular. No one's saved definitively. Only potentially. And potentials can go either way. Right? It can be that a lot of people get saved. It can be that none get saved. And to say that God was okay with that. God was okay with not a single human soul definitively getting saved. Is that... Does that make him more loving? I don't think so. Whereas with limited atonement, God is not saving all, but he is definitely saving many. By the way, by, by many, I mean as many as there are stars in the heavens. That's what God said. There are a lot of stars in the heavens. Okay. 
it's not only possible for, him, for them to be saved, it's actual. The cross makes salvation powerful. And I think that's more loving than saying, you know what? There's a chance no one might get saved. The second reason why unlimited atonement is a problem, it actually makes God stingy. It presents us with a God who says, hey, I met you halfway at the cross, and if you can't meet me the other half, you're no good for me. It's your problem, not mine. It conditions God's love on your choice, not his. On your strength, not his. On your willpower, not his. Remember what Jesus said, though? You did not choose me, but I chose you. He doesn't, he doesn't let it make it contingent on your choice, but on his choice, on his power to save. It's like a parent saying to a child, you, you didn't choose me, you didn't give birth to me, I, I gave birth to you. You're mine, you're my child. Is God's love less than that? Is God's love more conditional than the love of our human parents? Remember, he finished it all. He didn't leave it to us to finish it. But unlimited atonement makes God a stingy God who only goes halfway. Here's another problem for, for, for some people uh, when it comes to limited atonement. Um, something that limited atonement makes God unjust. Because what Christ suffered was infinite. He, he, he suffered an infinite, the infinite wrath of God and therefore the application of it should be infinite as well. But if you limit the application, it's, it's not... It's not justly applying what Christ had accomplished on the cross. It's a good question. Shouldn't it be applied to all people at all times? But here's what Arminians say. Unless they reject it. Unless they disbelieve, then it shouldn't apply to them. Okay, first of all, we would say that Christ's death is infinite for those who believe. It saves us infinitely. It saves us eternally. It saves us ultimately. So it is infinite. We're not saying it's finite. Because Christ saves his people to the uttermost. But ironically, those who argue that Christ's death should be applied to all people unless they choose to not receive it, they're actually the ones ending up with a belief in an unjust God. It's Armenians who actually have the problem with an unjust God. Think about it. If Jesus died for the sins of every single person in the whole world, then didn't he also die for the sin of not believing? Didn't he also die for the sin of rejecting Christ? Then why would anyone be punished for rejecting Christ? If, it's like if I owe a million dollar debt, but then you were kind enough to go ahead and pay that off for me to the government, to IRS. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right. Does it matter whether I believe in that or not? Like, like the IRS is not going to call me and say, sir, your debt was paid by someone, but because you didn't believe, you still owe a million dollar debt. Does that work? Regardless of whether I believe or not, if the debt's been paid, I'm forgiven, right? Whether I receive it or not. So how would an Armenian be able to say, Christ died for your sins, but because you didn't believe, you still owe God? How does that work? Doesn't that make God unjust, demanding the debt twice? The payment twice, not once? The problem with an unjust God is on, on their side, not ours. Remember what it says in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus paid it all. Okay. So technically, if you, follow, if you follow Arminian logic down to its logical conclusion, you have to espouse universalism, which says uh, 
no matter what you believe or what you have done, every human soul will eventually make it to heaven. That's universalism. But that, right, contradicts Jesus' teachings, that I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Armenians don't believe in universalism. I'm not saying they do. I'm just saying they have a big logical problem on their hands, don't they? It leads to universalism if you believe in unlimited atonement because Jesus died for the sins of unbelief. So I believe the more we dig into the so-called problems of limited atonement, I think what you actually find is more problems with unlimited atonement. Okay? Now, if you have other problems or objections, right? my office is open, we can have coffee, we can talk, okay? Let me close with this. Purpose. Why is this taught to us? Okay, very quickly. Um, why is Jesus' death on the cross, his shedding of his own blood, being limited to his chosen people taught to us? I think a very clarifying answer is actually given to us in Ephesians 5.25 where it says, Husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, the Bible describes marriage as this representation of Christ's giving himself up on the cross for the church. All human marriage therefore, is meant to reflect the, the beauty of this sacrificial love. It says here the Christ, that Christ's greatest act of love for his bride was him giving himself up for her, and husbands ought to imitate that. So here we get a very unique glimpse into the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross. It was for his bride. It was chosen, it was for his chosen bride. I think that's how I would summarize the doctrine. If you ask me, how do I summarize the doctrine of limited atonement? Christ died for his bride. And I remember when uh, Pastor Kevin got engaged to Sarah and, and informed the staff. We're all like so super excited and happy for him. And I went over to congratulate him. I'm so excited for him, happy for you. you know, that's such a big momentous you know, decision. I'm excited for God, it's such a blessing. But what I didn't say to him, who else did you propose to? Why just one? Why not two? Why not three? Why not four? Why limit your love to one woman? Can't you be more loving than that? Why would I get slapped in the face instead, right? Because I'm making a very false assumption there. The false assumption is the wider the love, the deeper it goes. That's the false assumption. When actually it's the opposite. In order for love to go deep, it's gotta be narrow. You gotta be laser focused in order for your love to go deep. And therefore it's appropriate for, for Kevin to smack me in the face and say, I propose to one woman only. She's the love of my life. Do you see what Jesus is saying to you, the church? You are the love of my life. I am laser focused on you. This is given to us so that it would cause us to rejoice and celebrate and worship our spiritual bridegroom who says, I will lay my life down for you, no one else. This is for you because I love you and I've set my heart upon you. Let's rejoice in that. Let's take comfort in this doctrine. Let's celebrate this doctrine. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good news that is powerful to save us. And that means it really ultimately doesn't matter if we think we are powerless, we are helpless, we are lacking in belief, we have doubts. 
Because if you, if you have set your heart on us, we can't be lost. And so, Lord, instead of trying to do more for you, instead of trying to prove ourselves ready, help us to see. Help us to behold you and see what your love would do to our hearts. And rather than hanging our relationship with you on how we're feeling, how we're doing, may we hang everything on the cross where you hung, where you laid it all up for us to show us you are set on us. You are determined to love us and save us to the uttermost. So we thank you for this good news and we pray that you'll grant us by your grace the faith to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name.